0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. My mental health really began to suffer during COVID. At first, life seemed normal. I work from home anyway. But as the months passed, with no vacation, no friends to see, no change in routine – It was a bit like the walls were closing in. And one of the things that got me through that period was therapy. Talking to someone who could help change the patterns that led to distress was incredibly helpful. If there's something you need to get off your chest, then why not give BetterHelp a try? You can just fill out a brief questionnaire online and they'll match you with a licensed therapist. You can arrange things to suit your schedule, and if you don't click with the person you're talking to, it's easy to switch to someone else. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Byzantium today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Byzantium. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 41, Who is a Byzantine? Today we come to the end of our 6th century tour slash Q&A, and the most frequently asked question by listeners centred around Byzantine identity. The simplest expression of this was, how did the Byzantines refer to themselves, their lands, and their empire. But more complicated formulations revealed deeper issues. Listener NL asked, We are between the period of the last Roman emperor, Justinian, and the first Greek one, Heraclius. How much is the empire at 600 AD, the same cultural and linguistic construction as it was in 476? To what extent has it already become or is on the way to becoming the less Roman, more Greek empire of later centuries. Or put another way, listener L.M. asks, How did the Byzantines understand Roman history? Was the population generally aware that they were a kingdom, then a republic, then an empire, then an eastern empire? Would the man on the street have any idea who Romulus, Caesar and Trajan were? So identity is the issue we will be discussing today, and it's an important question. The Byzantine Empire is, of course, a fictitious name, one that was never used during the empire's lifetime, and coined later by historians in order to differentiate the Eastern Romans from their classical predecessors. So what did the Byzantines refer to themselves as? Romans. Simple as that. In all the writing which survives, the people living in Byzantium call themselves Romans. In Greek, the word was Romei, but it was not a new designation. That was the same word which Greek speakers had used to identify the Roman people before the Western Empire fell. And that designation does not appear with any caveats about the difference between Romans now and the Romans of old. The Byzantines saw themselves as the same people as the ones who had grown up on the banks of the Tiber. And that applies to people in 600 AD, in 1000 AD, and even in 1453. When we get to later eras, we can discuss how Byzantine thought and culture had evolved, but the self-identification of people born in Byzantium was that they were Roman. How did the Byzantines refer to their lands and their empire? The name which is commonly used in our written sources from around 600 AD is Romania, as in the land of the Romans. This shift had taken place slowly over time from the Imperium Romanum, Roman Empire, to come to indicate the realm of a particular people. But what does this really mean? Your questions were asking for a deeper investigation of the issue. I suspect most of you knew those answers already. The real question seems to me to be, what does it mean to be a Roman in 600 AD? Does that designation mean the same thing it once did? Is Roman just a title, but actually referring to a quite different people? Uh, Aren't these just Greeks calling themselves Romans? Are these people mistaken to call themselves Romans? And don't they see the diminished circumstances that we perceive them to be living in? So let's get started. The word Byzantine was first used in the 16th century by a German historian and popularized a couple of hundred years later largely by French scholars. The judgment was made that the medieval Christian eastern-based Greek-speaking empire was not the same entity as the formerly Italian pagan Latin-speaking one. But is that judgment valid? I don't think so. After all, we're talking about self-identification. Could the Byzantines claim with a straight face that they were descendants of Romulus and Julius Caesar? Yes, of course they could. But had their state changed over time? Yes, of course it had. Any political entity will evolve over the centuries. Am I any less English than Oliver Cromwell or Charles I over on the uh, Revolutions podcast? Just because 450 years have passed since those events? I don't see why. They identified themselves as English just as I do, even though our world's are so vastly different. It's a handy analogy, because as we're hearing each week, the men involved in the English Revolution were deeply influenced by their Christian beliefs, just as the Byzantines were in 600. Whereas 450 years later, in my case, or earlier in the case of, say, Marcus Aurelius, the prevailing beliefs are quite different. Of course, a Christian Roman Empire was a different place to be than the classical pagan world. But the issue remains about identity. If the Byzantines had tried to diminish their own past, then perhaps we could make a case that they don't see themselves as the Romans of old, so why should we? But the Byzantines did not deny their past They didn't see Jesus' arrival on earth as invalidating the benefits which Roman civilization had brought. They continued to perceive themselves as the civilized world and those outside it as barbarians. It just so happened that the civilized world had now found the one true God. The Byzantines continued to value the institutions and laws which had been created before the birth of Christ and allusions in writing were still made to great leaders being like Augustus, and great generals matching the exploits of Scipio Africanus. Of course, with the passage of time, their perception and interpretation of the past would change, but that's what human beings do. As I view Byzantine history, I am indelibly coloured by my own point of view in the 21st century and the perception of the historians I read. Of course, the analogy with England does have an obvious problem. England is still in the same place it was back in 1600, while Constantinople was a good thousand miles from Rome. Did this shift in geography invalidate the claim of the Byzantines to really be the Romans? I hope you History of Rome listeners have already said a resounding no. Once Augustus set the boundaries of the empire... A slow shift began away from Rome, the city, as being the center of the empire. The Romans moved toward the whole Mediterranean world, becoming one united realm. I'm sure you will remember how the crisis of the 3rd century, the catalyst for so much change, forced the emperors to acknowledge that the capital was now wherever the emperor resided. More than just the location of power, though, the claim of the Byzantines to be Romans rests on a process which doesn't always receive the attention it deserves. That's the process by which the peoples of the Mediterranean slowly gave up their local or national identities and came to identify themselves with the conquerors who'd arrived from Italy. In the West, it's easier for historians to see this change occurring. In Spain, Gaul, and Britain, suddenly temples, baths, and Latin inscriptions appear, where before there were none. Clearly, those places had undergone Romanization. We can then sort of imagine how local Celts and Gauls slowly became Romans. Local women would marry soldiers... Local landowners would send their children to Latin tutors or build a theatre or an arch to ingratiate themselves with the new elites. Within a generation or two, their children would have been thinking like Romans and thought of themselves as citizens of the empire. This process is harder to see in the East because the people didn't stop speaking Greek or Syriac or Coptic and already had cities and temples of their own. However, a transformation of identity did take place. The vast majority of people living in the East slowly came to see themselves as Romans. As in the West, there was a slow acceptance that this was the new order of things, and new generations grew up knowing nothing else but being Roman. Once you get into the late 3rd century AD, the term we, referring to the Roman people, appears in almost all of the surviving literature. Books about the church, about philosophy, history, all begin to talk about we, the Romans. During the History of Rome podcast, we did glimpse the development of this new identification. At a certain point in time, secessionist movements... Ceased to take place, and all conflicts within the empire are viewed as civil wars by those taking part in them. The larger scale example of this came during the crisis of the third century, of course. If you'll recall, around 260 AD, a man named Posthumus rebelled against the sitting emperor Gallienus and began to rule a Gallic empire consisting of Britain, Gaul, and Spain. The new empire had its own emperor, senate, consuls, and Praetorian guard. In other words, the rebellion was entirely Roman. No one was suggesting an alternative. Closer to our own story, there were times when the border cities of Roman Mesopotamia could well have tired of paying the Persians protection money during one of Kusro's invasions and invited him to become their sovereign. But they didn't. The people of the eastern Mediterranean now considered themselves Roman. The Romans were their people, and even if a particular emperor let them down, they didn't question who they were. This process of identity change is one we might struggle to imagine today. The last couple of hundred years of our history have seen a push toward national self-determination we've seen very small nations of people push to break free from larger multi-ethnic empires. So it would be tempting to look back from our perspective and project that same desire on the peoples of 2,000 years ago. And certainly, when the Roman Empire arrived on people's doorsteps, they were often none too thrilled about losing their political freedom. But we have to remember the sheer length of time that the Romans ruled. Most parts of the Eastern Empire were absorbed by 100 AD. So by 600 AD, five centuries later, most local identities had given way to an identification with the now long-established Roman world. And remember that the Empire initially didn't ask people to become identikit Romans, as long as you paid your taxes, honoured the Emperor, and kept the peace, your life could go on as before. A tolerant style of occupation that very much encouraged the newly conquered to cooperate and co-mingle. I think we should also remember that the Roman Empire was very attractive to new immigrants. It was the richest and often the safest place to be in the known world. And we've seen over the centuries that new arrivals, like, say, foreign soldiers, would often gladly give up their former lives to become Romans, and raise their children as enthusiastic converts to the Roman way of life. We don't have to look far beyond the United States of America to imagine a state which attracts new people to come and settle, who then raise children who only know life as Americans. But let's not leave it at that. It wasn't just wealth and a lenient attitude to conversion that made people Romans. We need to know what it was that caused men to gladly call themselves Roman and be willing to die in defense of their state. Byzantine writers, when they touch on the subject, generally refer to customs and manners or a way of life as being the definition of Romanness. To be Roman... You lived and acted like one. To elaborate on this, I lean heavily on the work of historian Antony Caldellis. In his excellent book, Hellenism in Byzantium, he pulls together the writing of dozens of Romans and Byzantines to emerge with this picture of what men believed in. Rome, the city, had now become a world. The great virtue of the Roman Republic was the way its people and its institutions formed a contract. The people chose their officials, and those officials would work for the public good, and were bound by law. What made this formula uniquely successful in the Roman case was the liberal granting of citizenship, allowing more and more people to enjoy this reciprocal arrangement of government. That sense of social contract and of individual justice had now come to apply to the whole empire. The whole Roman world was now one city, guarded by the same wise rules. Now, before you point out the obvious, yes, the Roman empire was now ruled by one man. And yes, sometimes he could be Caligula and throw any rule book out the window and have your head chopped off. But by and large, that didn't happen. The horrible emperors stand out because they were the exceptions. Roman emperors may have had absolute power, but they were, in theory, in that position to do a job. They were there to run the government, maintain the law, and make decisions in the interests of the people. It was a self-conscious effort on the part of Augustus and his successors, to be seen as ruling for the benefit of the people. That's why the emperors would initiate building projects in every province. They didn't want to be seen as Italians lording their superior army over foreign subjects. They wanted to include everyone in the benefits of Roman citizenship. In this podcast, you've heard of emperors remitting taxes in times of hardship, or providing disaster relief and in a Christian era, building churches, hospitals, and orphanages. Last week I talked about emperors attending communion in the Hagia Sophia and sponsoring and attending the races in the Hippodrome. The emperor was not a king, the untouchable ruler of a nation who answered to no one. That's why he took an oath of office, just like any other imperial bureaucrat. In theory, and often in practice, he was acclaimed emperor by the senate, army, and people. We know that this was never a democratic vote, but we've also seen that each of those constituencies felt they had a right to complain if the emperor displeased them. Uprisings like Nika were the expression of a belief that if the emperor didn't fulfill his duties, then he could be deposed. Now, one could say... Ah, this is all window dressing. Real power lay in the hands of those with money or swords. Which, of course, when it comes to the crunch, and focus orders men to execute Maurice's family, becomes reality. Power will fall to those who seize it. But societies are built on commonly accepted beliefs. And the Romans clearly believed that they lived in a society built on an inclusive social contract. And there was visible evidence to support that. The emperor answered thousands of personal petitions a year. Why? Because it was his job. And Roman law was a real instrument of personal empowerment. Once precedents were established, they became real considerations in legal matters. And physical documentation gave individuals legal power over the bureaucracy. The day-to-day practice of law and the site of imperial benevolence were the realization of Roman ideology and created a unified community based on reciprocal expectations. The state was seen to act on behalf of its people and thus claimed their loyalty. This was no mere illusion. It was a reality created by centuries of experience. Now, I know that might sound like a very rosy picture of Roman life, and we will get to the discontented in a moment, but that is merely the political ideology of Byzantium as their own writers explained it. Day to day, as we know from the narrative, men took power. People would stab one another in the back, or steal, or persecute, or murder, and so on. And of course, people complained about corruption or class injustice or poverty, just as they do today. I'm sure those who suffered did not talk in glowing terms about the joys of being Roman. But the ideals which the empire was based on, and the reciprocal interactions which did take place, however limited they might seem from our perspective, were the parts of being Roman which the Byzantines championed. They may have been speaking Greek, praying to Jesus, and living on another continent, but they still believed that the Roman way of doing things was now their way of doing things. Nowhere in the texts does anyone hint that a better way of life would be found in some other earthly identity. And hundreds of years after 600 AD, men would still head into battle to the rallying cry of, remember, you are Romans. So what about those who didn't consider themselves Roman? Listener W.R. asked specifically about the ethnic groups living within the empire, and if you remember a couple of episodes ago, I let the question about Anatolian minorities pass by. I've posted a map in the usual places of a linguistic breakdown of the empire during the 6th century. Now, a good amount of this is guesswork, because without many literate people, we just can't be sure of who spoke what. And we should remember that across the East, Greek was used as the common language when men needed to conduct business. But as you can see, you have Latin speakers in Africa, Italy, and the northern Balkans, a large band of Greek speakers and then Syriac, Aramaic, and Coptic are still spoken in the countryside of the Levant and Egypt. From our perspective, it would be fair to talk about a Coptic-speaking Egyptian farmer as a different ethnicity from a Balkan-born Latin-speaking shepherd. They probably wouldn't have been able to have a conversation with one another, and so again, from our experience, it would be strange to claim that they were both Romans. But the word ethnicity, the way we define it, didn't really exist in the Byzantine vocabulary. No one would have expected those two men to meet, nor thought there was anything strange about them speaking different languages. They were both Romans because they lived in Romania. The important distinction for the Romans was still between people who acted like them and those who didn't. What we would call Roman racism is directed toward people who don't behave the way real Romans do. People were as willing to accept a Cappadocian-born native Greek speaker like Maurice as they were an Illyrian-born Latin speaker like Justinian. The important thing was that you were a Roman and behaved like one. The only emperor in our story who the people repeatedly rejected was Zeno the Isaurian, who was viewed by many as a barbarian, i.e. not sharing Roman customs and values. This was very unfair on Zeno himself, and was probably based on judging the behaviour of the rowdy Isaurian soldiers who got drunk on the capital streets. The Isaurians, you'll recall, lived in the Taurus Mountains, and had a reputation for being thieves and brigands. That lack of respect for the law is what marked them out as unRoman, but they were not thought of as a different ethnicity. People who lived in the lowlands a few miles away were of the same ethnic makeup, but were considered good Roman citizens. Similarly, the Jews and the Armenians often struggled to be thought of as Romans, not because of their ethnicity, but because they maintained a separate culture and could recall a time when they had independent political kingdoms. They could therefore dream of national self-determination in a way that prevented them from buying into the Roman way of doing things. Again, I'm not trying to paint a rosy picture of Roman inclusivity. There was plenty of regional snobbery, Men from Cappadocia, for example, were the butt of many jokes, while Anastasius, you may remember, was from Dyrrhachium, whose population were mocked for being tight fisted. And writers from Constantinople were always ready to put down provincial men for lacking their class and status. But none of these acts of petty prejudice discriminate against a particular ethnicity. As long as you now behaved like a Roman, it didn't matter. Where your roots were. Similarly, Christianity did not define you as a Roman. The conversion of the Franks or the Gassanids was seen as a positive step, but it did not make those people Roman. They didn't behave like Romans, they didn't live under Roman law. Whereas there were still pagans living in the empire who were viewed as Romans, even though they weren't Christians. They were a dying breed, thanks to peer pressure and imperial persecution, but when Justinian shut the Academy of Athens, he never claimed that the professors he was sending to the unemployment line were not Romans. Nor did the Monophysites stop being Roman because of their unorthodox belief. We have many surviving documents from a lawyer named Dioscorus, who lived in Aphrodito in Egypt. Aphrodito is 300 miles from the sea, deep in Monophysite territory, and Dioscorus wrote a lot in Coptic. However, he clearly identifies himself as a Roman, and talks about being part of the imperial system. Nowhere does he mention that local Monophysites felt any less Roman because of their debates with the Orthodox. In fact, the Monophysite desire to persuade the Orthodox to see things their way shows their concern to bring other Romans to the truth that they understood. So what about the Greeks? Most of you will know that by the time we come to the year 700 AD, all that will be left of the Byzantine Empire will be the Greek-speaking heartlands of Thrace, Constantinople, and Anatolia. The centuries of Byzantine history that follow will be a world of largely Greek speakers, writing in Greek, and living in an area that corresponds more closely to ancient and modern Greece than the Italian world where Rome was born. So, weren't the Byzantines just Greeks, calling themselves Romans? No. The Greeks, like everyone else in the eastern Mediterranean, Gave up their local identity to become Romans. We actually have writing from Greek authors under the early empire railing against their countrymen for abandoning their Hellenistic identity in favor of a Roman one. Some of the confusion over the Greekness of the Byzantine Empire stems from historical considerations there is obviously a nation of Greek speakers in Greece today who identify themselves as the Greeks. And if you look up your ancient history, there are Greek speakers in the same area in 400 BC about to defend Greece from the invading Persians. In between them is the Roman Empire and Byzantium, and so it would be easy to draw a through line and assume that the Greeks have always been there. They just wore Roman clothing for a while. But again, we are in danger of looking backwards and applying the values of today to a past that wouldn't recognize them. The idea of forming a country called Greece, based around national self-determination for the Greek-speaking people of the Aegean, is a modern idea. Many historians will tell you that the Athenians and the Spartans hated each other, and that Greek unity in the face of Persian occupation was merely a temporary expedient And beyond the famous wars, there is little evidence in what people wrote that there was much identification of a wider Greek world in a political sense. I know most of you will already know this, but in case you don't, up to around 400 BC, Greek-speaking colonies had spread around the Mediterranean. But the only large collection in the east were on the western coasts of Anatolia, the various city-states who sparked the famous war between the Persian Empire and Athens and Sparta. It was only with Alexander the Great in the 330s BC that the Greek language spread further eastwards. Alexander marched all the way to India, but behind him, Greek-speaking or Hellenistic civilization followed him, leading to many Greek-style cities populating the eastern Mediterranean, including Antioch and Alexandria and many others. By the time the Romans arrived on the scene, around 200 BC, Greek was the lingua franca of the eastern Mediterranean. But just because you spoke Greek didn't mean you identified yourself as Greek, or as a Hellene, or as a Hellene, as the occupants of the Greek peninsula were known. Instead, people saw themselves as Alexandrians, or subjects of King Ptolemy for a long time, rather than as a Greek in a political sense. So when men came to see themselves as Romans, the vast majority had never been Greek in our modern national or ethnic sense. They just spoke Greek, and their political identity was formed locally. However, there was a shared Hellenistic culture in the East. It's particularly visible to us in city life, And elite education. The ideal of the polis as the place where the education of intelligent and civilized men took place lived on with a strong focus on the Greek canon of poetry, rhetoric, and philosophy. This culture was so strongly embedded that it did survive the conversion of the people practicing it into Roman citizens. In the West, the Romans saw their culture as superior to the Celtic and Gallic people, so they weren't about to learn their languages. Instead, the people there adapted and became Latin speakers to assimilate into their new society. In the East, however, Hellenistic culture was far more entrenched with centuries of written work which the Italians admired, so the Romans simply adapted and learned to speak Greek. As early an emperor as Claudius complimented a foreign visitor because he could speak both our languages. This adaption didn't seem to bother the Romans. Many Greek colonies had set themselves up in the south of Italy, and once the Republic absorbed them, laws were issued in Latin and Greek to facilitate clear communication. The survival of both the Greek language and of Hellenistic intellectual life did mean that the Eastern Roman world was different to the Western one. That sounds like a podcast of its own to me, but to draw on the most obvious difference, the great theological speculation about the nature of Christ, Arianism, Nestorianism, Monophysitism, all developed in the East, where a culture of intellectual investigation and debate had existed long before Jesus. Whereas in the West... The debate was far weaker, with loyalty to the papacy as the final word on religious matters was quickly accepted. But this cultural difference was true for the whole life of the empire. Eastern and Western Romans had their differences long before the West fell. It wasn't peculiar to Byzantium. Nor did it affect the identification of those Hellenistically influenced Romans to identify themselves as such. Whether you loved Plato, or you loved Jesus, or you loved both, you were still a Roman at heart, and not a Greek. There was no Greek political identity that could claim people's loyalties. In fact, in some later Byzantine documents, Greek is referred to as our language, or the language of the Romans. And in a few cases, even just... Roman. Now, that's not to say that people didn't take pride in speaking Greek, or talk about the beauty of the language. And once the Crusades kick in, the Romans will begin to contrast their language with the barbaric tongues of the new arrivals. But they never stopped thinking that they were Romans first and foremost. To suggest they were really Greeks would be as strange as claiming that today, Americans are really Englishmen, just because they speak English. I can only imagine the horror on your faces. I was as surprised as some of you will be to discover the deep extent of this cultural identification. It can be hard to get over your preconceived notions about how history fits together. Once Constantinople fell in 1453, it became difficult for those Romans who were left to identify themselves as such, as they no longer possessed the institutions which had defined their common identity. It wasn't until the 18th century that the idea of forming a Greek nation-state began to be seriously discussed. As you probably know, the Ottoman Turks ruled over the former Byzantines for the next few centuries, referring to them as the Romi. An astonishing story comes to us from Peter Charanis an American historian who left the Greek island of Lemnos when he was very young. He describes how in 1912, when he was four years old, the Greek navy arrived to occupy the island and incorporate it into the new kingdom of Greece. Soldiers were sent to the public squares to spread the news, and young Peter ran out with his friends to have a look at what these Hellenes, these Hellenes, as his parents called them, looked like. "'The soldier asked the children, "'What are you looking at?' "'And one of them replied, "'At Hellenes." "'Are you not Hellenes yourselves?' he retorted. "'No,' said one of the children. "'We are Romans.' "'That was only a hundred years ago. "'It's hard to say from the evidence I've seen "'that the Byzantines thought of themselves "'as anything other than Romans.' I hope that goes a long way to answering your questions about Byzantine identity. In terms of the Byzantine understanding of Roman history, listener L.M. points out himself that your level of education would dictate quite a lot. I imagine many illiterate Byzantines knew world history as the Garden of Eden, Jesus, and Constantine, but that was about it. While in the writings of intellectuals, there are certainly references to the Republic and to the pagan emperors. If I were to guess about the average person in Constantinople, though, it would be that the foundation of his own city might determine the depth of his historical understanding. As in, he would be generally aware of the great men who had statues and monuments he could see, like Constantine, Theodosius, and Justinian but a specific knowledge of Romulus, Caesar, and Trajan would probably be beyond him. That's entirely conjecture, but it wouldn't be so different from some in the United States today. At least my understanding is that high school education focuses on the history of America. You wouldn't be expected to know what your ancestors in Europe were up to in the 15 or 1600s, any more than someone in 600 A.D., would be thinking about Hadrian or Nerva. Listener GT asked about the state of the Roman ego. Did the Byzantines perceive themselves as the Eastern Empire, not the whole Roman world anymore? And did the constant raids in East and West limit their own propaganda about being the undisputed world empire? I think in 600 AD the answer is no, The Roman Empire had been through hard times before and had always prevailed. The raids had been coming for 300 years now, and the empire was still here. Justinian had just brought some of the western provinces back into the empire. Clearly, Romania would last forever. I also think some people in the east would have developed a Constantinople-centric vision. That was the capital of the empire now, and... What went on to the west of it was not of huge concern to them. Again, our ability to look at the empire on a map is quite different from people who only had a dim awareness of distant places. To them, the loss of Gaul or Spain may not have seemed as disastrous as it does to us. I'm sure some of you will ask again at the end of future centuries about how the Roman ego is doing. So that's it for the 6th century. Next time, the narrative moves forward again as the new Emperor Focus surveys his realm. Next time will be in three weeks, as Christmas has arrived, but I promise when we resume, the story will be worth waiting for. Thank you so much to all of you who've left iTunes reviews. I hope you felt a warm glow of selfless satisfaction. If you'd like to feel that way too, then you know what to do.